Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's right on four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time. Today, the situation in Venezuela with Fred Puentes, the Green the Gene Ethics Network with Bob Phelps, the work of a peace activist, Dale Hess, Susan Faulkner and the reality of life for Palestinians in the occupied territories. But first, let's hear it for Mr Kevin Healy and in between that we'll be hearing Richard Bonoski talking about the caravans of refugees from the United, from the Central America into the United States. A week, Jane, listener, when... Hang on, listener, sorry, I, I won't be long. I'm, I'm just trying to find another possibility, a third possibility. I'm, I'm sure you're doing the same thing, but do let me know if you come up with an answer. You know, I can't see it, anyone other than Scuttle Them or Little Billy and their lots being the government. God, it's depressing, isn't it? Why, why don't they give us a choice? Still, it's led to some pretty rare actions, like the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin Election Pages headline Wednesday, Labor Slams PM. Gee, go on, that's news? Wednesday, of course, was May Day, and the Wapping Sin delivered its annual and highly predictable coverage. Well, almost, and for that I must apologise to Lord Rupert to the Wapping Sin, which I was predicting would ignore May Day altogether with such pressing critical news like upcoming top-of-the-range fashions, which did get an important and informative coverage, people racing a steam train and similar world-shattering, but to its credit, Lord Rupert celebrated May Day with an editorial attacking the Firefighters Union, backing up a sensation, sensation news story attacking the firefighters union and sure May Day didn't get a direct mention but Lord Rupert knew astute readers could just look at the top of each page to see May 1, a giveaway generally the only information on each page we can guarantee is the truth with Lord Rupert obviously rejecting the temptation to utilise a euphemism like April 30 plus 1 so Lord Rupert accept the week that was his apologies and like the media generally, Lord Rupert knew that after such saturation coverage of May Day on the day itself, there was no need to give even a line to Sunday's Melbourne March. Besides, there's so much news this week, but nothing to match the excitement of this morning's whoppings in P1. It's a boy, surely a treasonable offence, calling the newest member of Her Most Gracious Majesty's ever-expanding inbred hangers-on an it. But it did have a brilliant pun. Here we go. <laughs> Isn't that hysterical? If some of the box pops from various electorates don't do enough to challenge our faith in the values of one person, one vote, in the human race itself, in making a case for a very selective franchise, then the case is confirmed, our faith shattered, when we hear box pops and the deep-thinking masses outside Windsor Castle popping champagne corks and screeching with excitement at the birth of yet another little mouth for their taxes to feed in the luxury to which that lot are accustomed and expect as their birthright. 
far less important news for the future of the non-human race, this UN of the US of the UN of the world report that at least a million species are in danger of extinction thanks to the human race, which regards itself as the top of the heap species. One million over and above all the species already rendered extinct, and as proud true blue Aussies, we can celebrate our position as the biggest extinguisher of them all, because hard as it is to believe, like Her Most Gracious Majesty's lot and the caring business class, we as a species at the top of the chain know that if it's a choice between them and us, the them has to go every time. After all, often the them stands between the practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all and a bag of money. So it's a no-brainer why we see the justified petulance when the practitioners complain that some rare or locally indigenous them, some possum or bird or reptile, holds up environmental approval for a bag of money. An unnecessary delay, they point out, because the bag of money always gets approved. With guarantees, the practitioners will do all they can to protect the bloody nuisance them. And they take these guarantees very seriously and full marks to that safe as a 100,000 years uranium mine in western True Blue Aussie approved one second before big supremo scuttled their more lash son called the election which said it couldn't guarantee as one of the conditions was to ensure a particular them, a small bird I think, close to extinction does not become extinct and the company told the government it couldn't give that guarantee and the government said fair enough and gave them the approval proving that it's the them's own fault if they get between a great caring corporation and a bag of money Meanwhile, as the deep political philosophy that is the stuff of the election campaigns absorbs our minds, minds which sadly can't come up with a third possibility, scuttle them's lot have dredged up an economist who says, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition's renewable energy target will also destroy the delicate flower that is the economy, that quite simply we can't afford to save the planet. But it's not all bad news. The planet will fry to death with a very, very healthy economy. And given we can't afford to prevent the planet frying to death, then the future of those thems, the endangered species, is irrelevant. They'll just go out a bit earlier than the rest of us, making the UNOV report an unnecessary waste of money and resources. Shame, UNOV, shame. There have also been a series of comments that don't really need comment, not that that will stop the week that was. The It'd be funny if it wasn't so serious award of the week to the US of the UN of the US of the World Secretary for US of World State, Mike Pompeo or else, for accusing Russia of interfering in Venezuela. <laughs> no, we can't match that with a comment. Mike, your it'd be funny if it wasn't so serious award of the week is on its way. The US of did say, this is our hemisphere the hegemonic master of the universal hemisphere and it would show the depths to which the Russians, for instance, would be, pre be prepared to sink if they made some puerile retort like, Ukraine, this is our hemisphere. That would make Mike and his commander-in-chief Donald Trample the poor very righteously angry indeed, proving evil Russia has no grasp of what universal hemisphere means. 
As lots of non-people Palestinians are killed and injured, their property which they have no right to in the first place bombed and destroyed, Mike also said Zion had a right to defend itself against terrorism. Although, why it would want to defend itself against itself... I've got no idea. And the US Ob is also in its great crusade for world peace against the bad guys, sent a few peaceful train killer ships, the odd aircraft carrier, to the waters off evil China and the waters off evil, evil Iran, with the Commander-in-Chief's advisor on peace, John Buildupon, confirming sadly that in Venezuela and Iran, the US Ob could not rule out having to invade and bomb and slaughter in its role of the top of the world peace movement. John Beldupon keeps complaining about this overwhelming itch. The US Ob is also involved in Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country attempting to extradite that evil Julian Assange to punish him for the heinous crime of exposing US Ob war crimes, which aren't war crimes because the US Ob doesn't commit war crimes. It just does a hell of a lot of collateral damage. Assange serving 50 weeks of breaking bail, and given the maximum was 52 weeks, we must congratulate Her Honour for her compassion. Although he'll remain locked up for the year or two or three, the extradition proceedings drag on. But the US have made a very strong case. We want to execute him. Sorry, sorry, wrong page, went too far. Uh, here we are. We want to execute the extradition order. On the election excitement, our autumnal election hibernation, Friday the ABC said a number of listeners had rung up, rung up asking details for that night's gripping debate, which was on Lord Rupert's pay TV channel, guaranteeing a mass audience with that channel's collection of totally neutral commentators. But I don't think that matters. I'm sure everyone was ringing up to ensure they didn't inadvertently turn it on. Out on the hustings, let's hope the caring business class doesn't fall for yet another socialist trick, as little Billy keeps promising a fair go, a, a fairer true blue Aussie. My word, that's in-depth, informative, as if a political leader would promise an unfair go, an unfair true blue Aussie, even though we all know that's what we always end up with. But if taken at his word, a fair go for all, because little Billy is a former union boss, the worst kind of boss, pejorative, pejorative, unlike a caring business class boss, the very best kind of boss, would know a fair go can only be achieved if people receive the full value of their labour and everyone receives a livable income. In other words, the destruction of capitalism. In other words, a fair go would mean an unfair go for the caring business class, a loss of control. As far as we're concerned, we feel we already get quite a fair go in this country, although if by fair go the, the socialist fellow means more of a fair go for capital to help all of us, then, oh, listen, now let's hope the caring business class sees through little Billy's seemingly innocent promise before it's too late. Finally, good though to see former Socialist Party Big Supremos, the world's greatest worst ex-treasurer Paul, little Kebby Rod for the workers and Julia Gallinghard at the Socialist launch and all looking so thrilled to see and hear little Billy, leaving us to this simple multiple choice question. Which of the three did little Billy not stab in the back? The answer is, and I'm sure we all got it, B and C. Although I'm sure if he'd been around at the time, it would have been all three. Still, each of them stabbed someone in the back, so even money. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr. Kevin Healy.
In recent days, a group of people critical of Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro clashed with anti-US intervention protesters at the Venezuelan embassy in Washington, D.C., who have been occupying the mission for more than two weeks. I spoke yesterday with writer and journalist Fred Fuentes and asked him to give the background to these protests. The background to what's happening there is, uh, as many of the listeners will probably know, on January 23, uh, Juan Guaido, who's the president of the National Assembly, uh, self-proclaimed himself to be uh, Venezuela's president. He claimed that uh, Nicolas Maduro's election had been illegitimate and so therefore did not recognise his inauguration as the country's president, which had occurred about two weeks before. And essentially, as of January 23, there's been a bit of a, a diplomatic war being waged, diplomatic battle being waged outside of Venezuela to see which of the, the two recognised by foreign governments. To date, about 50 governments have recognised uh, Juan Guaido as the supposed interim president of Venezuela, representing roughly about 25% of the, the world's uh, governments and world's nations, uh, whilst the other 75%, either one way or another, either expressly declared their recognition of Nicolas Maduro or have said that this is an internal issue for Venezuela to resolve. Um, it's not our decision to decide who is and who isn't the president of Venezuela. Only the people of Venezuela can decide. Amongst those uh, 50 or so countries or governments that have recognised Juan Guaido is the United States. And so what's been happening is, is uh, that we've seen since January 23 is that Juan Guaido has appointed a number of uh, ambassadors Consul, consul generals uh, to the different countries where those governments have recognised him. In general, a lot of those countries uh, have not really gone to the step of, well, firstly, in some cases, even recognising some of these foreign diplomats uh, in many of the European countries, it, despite those that have recognised Juan Guaido, have not gone as far to actually recognise any of his uh, diplomats as official uh, representatives, diplomatic representatives in those countries, preferring instead to accept them as a special envoys or personal envoys of Juan Guaido. But the U.S. has been one of the, one of the key flashpoints, or of course the U.S. has been a, a key spearhead in, in the push to get Juan Guaido installed as the president of Venezuela. Uh, have removed uh, Venezuelan diplomats from the embassies and consulates uh, in the United States, uh, a move that Venezuela replicated by uh, expelling U.S. diplomats uh, in Venezuela. And many of the consulates have already been occupied by the uh, appointed, or Guaido's appointed consuls and consul generals. Uh, however, the, the embassy is one that has been uh, occupied by a number of peace activists, Venezuela solidarity activists, who are saying, well, this is, this is the legitimate property, this is a legitimate embassy, of the legitimate president of Venezuela who continues to be uh, Nicolas Maduro and that they won't allow coup plotters, they won't allow those aligned with Juan Guaido who as we saw last week was uh, attempted to once again uh, overthrow Nicolas Maduro for undemocratic means calling on the military to come out in support of him. Uh, they won't allow the representatives of, of the opposition to, to essentially take over the embassy in the United States. So what we've seen is essentially an occupation there of, of the embassy, uh, secret services, uh, despite that being essentially Venezuelan sovereign territory, as most uh, 
diplomatic territories are, or you know, embassies are recognised around the world have have done little to nothing uh, to stop opposition attempts to try to break in into the embassy to stop food and uh, medicines uh, getting into the embassy in attempts to kind of uh, strangle or to, to to sort of force the, the the occupiers out and not not be similar to the U.S.'s policy of the sanctions that it's imposing on the Venezuelan people, and that's what we've essentially seen and continues to occur uh, around the Venezuelan embassy in the United States. How did they get the embassy staff out? Well, the embassy staff have already left. The Venezuelan embassy staff left as part of the agreement or the reciprocal actions that occurred uh, between the United States and Venezuela of removing uh, diplomatic uh, missions from each country. So essentially, once the conflict began, uh, a process unfolded, uh, which was a, a somewhat of a negotiated process, but the end point was basically a breaking off of relations, and that would generally entail removing all diplomatic staff from, from each other's countries. So what's important, though, here to note is that even though Relations have been broken and the U.S. negotiated with the Maduro government to, to do that process. What is the unique aspect here is that, that simultaneously they've also now said, well, we also recognise Guaido as the actual head of state of Venezuela, as the actual president of Venezuela, and so therefore will hand over what is Venezuelan state property uh, over to an individual or the representative of an individual, in this case uh, Juan Guaido's uh, self-appointed uh, 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 ambassador to the United States. Again, not dissimilar to, for instance, what they've done with CITGO, the, the PDVSA Venezuelan state oil company affiliate in the United States, where generally if you were to uh, expropriate such a, a company uh, would fall into the United States hands but in this case have expropriated what is Venezuelan state property in order to hand over and put the profit proceeds of that company into the bank accounts of a private individual, in this case Juan Guaido. Members of Code Pink are still, I believe, in the embassy. How did they get in? That's right. The, the last I have seen is that they continue to be in there. As I, as I said, though, they're you know, under co constant siege and we'll see what happens uh, in this sort of standoff. But essentially, uh, you know, it, it was known that the embassy staff were going to have to leave the country. Uh, it was also known that the opposition were going to try to uh, uh, take over a number of these consulates and embassies, and in fact, had already, you know, uh, uh, taken over some of the some of the consulates in other cities. And so, as a response to that, uh, what is essentially called the Embassy Protection Collective was set up, um, involving, as you mentioned, activists from Code Pink, but also other anti-war in Venezuela solidarity groups to, to basically move in, into, the, into the embassy and start occupying it. And the police and the security services are now coming into it too and refusing to let food go in? Essentially, largely they've been playing a, a standoffish role, which is somewhat unique for uh, in, when it comes to actually protecting the diplomatic sort of territories or, or, or diplomatic missions, embassies, consulate. Uh, one only has to uh, try and organise a protest out the front of any embassy or consulate to see quite a, what will be quite a large police presence there, uh, not just regular police but federal police and in some cases uh, ASIO as, as well. But in, in the case of the Venezuelan embassy in the United States, the security forces have essentially stood aside as supporters of the opposition have tried to break down doors to try to get into the embassy. As such, so far they have been unsuccessful. But as I said, we'll, we'll see how long this standoff occurs for. Of course, the US government has made very clear its position on all this. So it certainly couldn't be... Uh, out of the question that we could see, if, if the opposition activists themselves are unable to secure control of the embassy, that the US may use its own police or secret services to, to remove the, the occupiers, which of course would be a, 
a hugely dangerous precedent when it comes to sort of international law uh, and general respect for, for diplomatic relations. But as I said, with the, that's yet to be seen if, if that will occur or not and how this standoff will end at the Venezuelan embassy. How serious do you believe was the plot to force a coup? I think from the opposition's side, it was definitely a, a very serious attempt. Uh, what's, of course, unclear, and we probably won't know, certainly at least not for another few days, weeks, maybe even months, is just how deep the sort of support for the coup went into the, the military forces. Uh, it seems somewhat pretty clear that the opposition were forced to rush ahead with their uh, sort of call on the military and, and their supporters to come out on the streets. Uh, Juan Guaido had initially called for uh, what he deemed, what he said was going to be the largest protest in Venezuelan history from, from May 1 and was sort of pointing, you know, everything was pointing towards that day as a key turning point in what he's dubbed uh, Operation Freedom. Uh, however, it was the day before on April 30, very early in the morning when he, together with uh, Leopoldo Lopez, who's been under first jail and then more recently under house arrest since 2014 for his involvement in um, violent protest actions that occurred that year. Both of them are also members of the Popular Will Party, one of the more far-right parties within the Venezuelan opposition. Uh, the two of them appeared, despite media claims that they were inside the La Carlota military airbase, they were actually outside the, the airbase with somewhere between a dozen to, to three dozen members of the, the armed forces saying that the armed forces are claiming that they'd taken over the base, that other bases were coming over to their side, that the military was slowly coming to their side, and now it's a time for others to come out and support them, not just in the military, but outside of the military as well. Instead, we saw almost no other real semblance of fracturing or rupturing within the, the Venezuelan military. And as I said, that could have been for two reasons. One reason could have been, of course, that they had no more support than what, what they uh, actually you know, thought they did and, and, and was very much limited to those dozen to two dozen uh, soldiers they were able to amass outside the base. Uh, the other option is that perhaps uh, they were, because their actions were forced to be rushed ahead, they were unable to really sort of connect with the sort of support they had inside to, to sort of make a bit, bit more of a stand. And sort of evidence that points to the fact that they were rushed to move ahead with this attempted military coup was the fact that it's quite largely believed that Sabin, which is one of the intelligence services, the head of, of Sabin was involved in this. Sabin have been responsible for monitoring uh, Leopoldo Lopez under house arrest, so there's a strong indication that his ability to get out of house arrest was uh, in part allowed by the, the head of Sabin, and it also appears that since April 30, the head of Sabin has left the country. So one would indicate that perhaps he was part of the, the plot, either got scared at the last minute and didn't come out publicly in support, but certainly you know, hasn't remained in his post and has subsequently been replaced. Were other figures involved? Uh, as of yet, there's no clear indication of that. But as I said, it's, it's perhaps that's something that we'll find out in the next weeks or months to come, although the government has said that they've opened investigations into at least 17 people. They haven't released the names, or at least certainly I haven't seen those names as to who they are, uh, how many of them are in the military. I know that some of them are, are of course, Leopoldo Lopez, who's now on the run, having been under house arrest, and he's now in the Spanish embassy. Another one is the vice president of the National Assembly, who was present there when the, the sort of call for a, a coup occurred on, on April 30. But no doubt there were perhaps some others uh, from within the military uh, who have been exposed through this attempted coup that occurred on, on April 30. How seriously do you take Pompeo's threat from a, a US attack? Again, this is one of those things that is very hard to tell. On the one hand... It is certainly, yeah, without a doubt, 
part of the US strategy of mounting pressure to isolate Maduro and his government to sort of always keep open all options. Uh, so the constant threat of a military intervention is, of course, something that weighs heavily on people's thoughts in Venezuela into what actions they take next. So it certainly serves that purpose, irrespective of whether they are actually planning to, to carry out a, a military intervention in the immediate future. It also appears as though perhaps there are different viewpoints on this, and we saw that after U.S. President Donald Trump's recent meeting with uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin, that Trump, you know, essentially very much dialed down the sort of the tone of, of the threats going on on Venezuela, and where he said that rather than intervention and interfering in Venezuela's uh, in Venezuela, what was necessary is to work together to help get humanitarian aid to Venezuela, and that may perhaps indicate a sense that Trump feels maybe betrayed is a strong word, but certainly felt like he was probably being sold something by people such as uh, Pompeo and, and John Bolton, his national security advisor, who you know, almost pretty much proclaimed that Maduro was going to be gone, uh, and yet Maduro is still there, and the military coup has been a, you know, quite a bit of a failure for the opposition, so perhaps it represents Trump saying, well, look, obviously your line's not working, perhaps we need to go in a different direction, but um, I certainly don't think it can be ruled out. You know, there are certainly been sections of the, even of the U.S. military generals in the South Command who are constantly, you know, talking about preparations for military interventions. And what we will see, I, I believe, in the next few weeks is, a, is an escalation of the violence because really the opposition now in Venezuela is being left with little to no outlet unless it wants to actually just sit down and have a dialogue with the government for an end to this, this situation. And the only other outlet it has is to escalate violence. And so we saw, for instance, just yesterday, uh, an attack on a military vehicle that was carrying a, a number of uh, soldiers and also members of the police that led to the deaths of, of, of six uh, security forces uh, personnel. I think we'll also more of these sort of essentially, you know, sort of terrorist attacks on security forces and an attempt to sort of stoke violence, provoke violence, provoke a reaction from the military and the government, further chaos uh, in Venezuela, uh, which, you know, of course, then would certainly, you know, from the U.S. viewpoint, open the doors, I think, for once again raising the spectre of military intervention and saying, well, we need to step in here before things get, get out of hand. So that's a real danger that violence within Venezuela will escalate now that their attempted military coup has failed and it probably has meant that some of the opposition's contacts within the military are now either being exposed or will have to go back into hiding, are unable to really do much in the next period. And so what we'll see is instead the use of those soldiers that have deserted over the last few uh, weeks that have gone over the border to Colombia, uh, together with paramilitaries who have had a constant presence in Venezuela, not just in the last few weeks, but for the last few years in carrying out terrorist attacks and uh, killings, assass targeted assassinations. I think that's, that's a, unfortunately a very high possibility unless pressure is brought to bear and both sides are sort of brought to the table to, to, to initiate some kind of a, a dialogue and a peaceful resolution to the current crisis. Is there also a sense of who's in charge? Is it actually Trump or is it Pompeo and Bolton? Different analysts have, have different viewpoints on that. I think it certainly would appear uh, that it, Trump has, from the start and for a long time now, had Venezuela on his sights. He certainly has seen that as a bit of a, a blip in U.S. foreign policy, saying how can it be that a country so close to us has, you know, sort of, uh, you know, as he would describe it, gone rogue, gone communist, and, and the U.S. has just stood by and let this happen. 
So I think he's, he's always had a keen interest in trying to return Venezuela to basically you know, being a client state of the U.S. I think having said that, it was pretty clear that in order to deal with Venezuela, he brought in a bunch of people such as John Bolton, such as Mike Pompeo, uh, such as Elliot Abrams, you know, an old Cold War uh, warrior from the Contra Wars that occurred in Central America in the, in the 80s, brought him as his special envoy on Venezuela, and I think has sort of let them a bit take the rein on what's occurring in, in Venezuela. Though the, the balance sheet, uh, almost about well, over 100 days now after Guaido self-proclaimed himself president, is not a, not a very positive one when it comes to the opposition and the U.S. ambitions. They proclaimed themselves president, but it's very clear that in reality Guaido is not the president. They claimed that they were going to get humanitarian aid into the country and that the military would just peel away as a mass wave of protest pulled this humanitarian aid over the border, but none of that occurred. On April 30, they said the military had come over to their side and evidently that, hadn't hap- that didn't happen as well. So perhaps the comments after the Putin meeting represent a change in policy. Who, who knows, Trump says a lot of things and then changes his mind the next day. So I suppose we will have to see what, what occurs in, in the next days and weeks to come. There were rival marches on May Day. Was violence kept out of that? May 1 was a, a, a largely peaceful day, not to say that there wasn't any confrontations at all with, with secu- between protesters and security forces, but uh, it was certainly, you know, that were the, the, just the, the small, the exception rather than the rule in general, particularly in Caracas. Both sides of politics uh, marched, uh, you know, with thousands on, on both sides, but neither of the two marches being spectacularly large. Uh, and just a, again, a, 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 just an ongoing representation of the, the somewhat of a, a stalemate, perhaps that, that continues to exist uh, in, in Venezuela. But um, what we did see is that over the weekend, Guaido had called for another protest. Well, two things he had called for was the beginning of rolling strikes, of which none have really uh, occurred, and secondly, he also called for another round of protests on the weekend, which were in this case dismally small and even he himself didn't turn up to the protest. So one will have to see perhaps what reflections the opposition may make of, of the fact that post-April 30, the May 1 demonstrations, which were meant to be the largest in Venezuelan history, really weren't, were far from, from that, and that subsequently both their call for, for strikes and protests on this weekend have, have largely not materialised. You were fairly upbeat after your visit there a couple of, or about six weeks ago. Are you still upbeat now? Well, it depends on what we refer to in upbeat. Uh, I think that what, what we're seeing on the ground is uh, an inability of the opposition to be able to impose itself via undemocratic means. So I think in that regard, there doesn't seem to be uh, a strong likelihood that an actual military coup may occur. Of course, that's very, very difficult to tell from afar, uh, particularly when you're dealing with an institution like the armed forces, which are a very secretive organisation in any country in the world. So the ability to really be able to know what's going on there is, is limited. But so far, all indications are that the military are, uh, are standing by the Constitution and standing by the Constitution of President Nicolas Maduro. Having said that, the economic situation continues to get worse and is only going to get worse as more and more sanctions are being imposed on Venezuela. So in that sense, you know, far from being upbeat, there's a real, a real, real need to sort of uh, help Venezuela uh, turn around its economic situation. And instead, what we're seeing is, uh, you know, the... Uh, governments working to worsen the situation in the hope that that may turn people against the Maduro government and uh, an appliant media that basically refuses to even discuss what these sanctions are, what their impacts are. In a context where only just last week we had a report released 
by the Centre for Economic Policy and Research, co-authored by uh, US economist Mark Wiesbrod and, and Jeffrey Sachs, who's made his name as an economist, as a neoliberal economist in, in, the, in the 80s, so you're far from being any kind of fan of, of Maduro or his economic policies, but their report estimates that perhaps something like 40,000 people died in Venezuela last year as a result of the US sanctions, uh, yet none of this is, is being reported in the media, and they explicitly state that that number will only get bigger this year, given the new sanctions that the US government has, has imposed, and to a lesser extent, European Union nations as well. Things that it should be pointed out, all of which are being supported by the Australian government, who's one of those 50 governments that has recognised Juan Guaido, who, in the middle of the coup attempt on April 30, um, Marissa Payne, the foreign minister, tweeted out once again that Australia recognises Juan Guaido as the Venezuela's interim president um, and has done nothing or said nothing about opposing the, the devastating impact that the sanctions are having on ordinary Venezuelan people. Where is the help for Venezuela coming from and where should it be coming from? There is some help coming from uh, some countries such as, for instance, uh, Russia and China who have been providing some level of humanitarian aid. There's also been, particularly the Red Cross, but in collaboration with the United Nations, have come to an agreement to actually start bringing in humanitarian aid into the country as well and have set up a fund. Although, funnily enough, all of those countries that only a few weeks ago were demanding that Maduro let in the, the US fake humanitarian aid have put in a piddlance or nothing into the, into the Red Cross fund uh, to help Venezuela. Where should the help be coming from? Well, it should be coming from one of those governments that claim to say that they, they want to help out the Venezuelan people. If they're generally interested in helping out the Venezuelan people, the most immediate things they should be doing is demanding an end to the sanctions, demanding an end to recognition of a coup government as a first step towards opening the door to dialogue and, and contributing with the Red Cross to, the, to its humanitarian aid push uh, in Venezuela, which is already happening on the ground and is, you know, will be a vital part you know, of helping to, to save lives in, in Venezuela. Of course, together with what will be necessary from Venezuela's viewpoint, or from the Venezuelan side of things, is for the Venezuelan government to implement the kind of economic policies as well that can also help to, to get out of the situation. But that's quite difficult in the context where you're facing a daily coup attempts uh, to try to overthrow the, the government in the, in the country. And how can you change that economic situation with so many sanctions? I think it's debatable whether you can. I wouldn't go as far as to say as that it's absolutely impossible, but it's certainly extremely hard. And I think at best, what the, with the sanctions regime in place, the best that perhaps the government can do is at least seek to uh, enact some policies that can immediately target some of the most pressing issues, but they're not going to turn around the economic situation. So perhaps they could better direct resources and money towards helping with some of the problems with lack of medication. Now, of course, that still involves having to find the countries willing to trade with Venezuela, having to find the banks that are willing to allow tra financial transactions to occur to get the, those medicines in. So even that, even just something as simple as that is, is not at all simple when it comes to Venezuela, given the sanctions that have been imposed. But yeah, there I think what we're really talking about in the, in the current context of what the Venezuelan government could begin to, to be able to do. But in terms of the much bigger changes that need to be done, I, it's very debatable whether anything can be done in the, uh, you know, until these sanctions are, are being lifted because 
the economic consequences of these sanctions are, are dramatic in terms of the amount of uh, gross domestic product lost, the amount of uh, import revenue that's been lost, you know, all of which Venezuela is dependent for, for being able to import its, its food or medicine. I mean, the state oil company accounts for basically 98% of all foreign currency coming into the country. And when you have sanctions that are essentially crippling that industry and stopping it from being able to sell oil to, to other countries, and you're also stopping it, its ability to carry out financial transactions in international banks, what is the country left to do? It's a, it's a very difficult situation. So, uh, and, and, of course, those behind the sanctions know that. They're very explicit about that. While they claim that it doesn't impact on, on Venezuelan people, every sanction ever implemented in the world has, has always, been, uh, always hit the poorest hardest, and that's the same here in Venezuela. Those that are interested in helping the, the plight of the Venezuelan people, the first thing they should be doing is demanding a lifting of these sanctions because outside of that, it's very hard to see anything but a worsening of the, 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 the economic and social situation in Venezuela today. Thanks, Fred. Thank you. And that was journalist and author Frank Fuentes, Fred Fuentes, who was um, in Venezuela in March this year. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Next on the program, Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Politicians are often sneaky and bring things in just before an election and this year's no different? Oh, exactly, yes. The day before the um, election was called and uh, the government went into caretaker mode, they took quite a few different laws to the Governor-General and got them passed rather sneakily while everybody was looking in the other direction. And one of those was the deregulation of a lot of new genetic engineering techniques. It had been an ongoing discussion for about a year and a half Federal Minister uh, Bridget McKenzie went to the Governor-General the day before and now so-called site-directed nuclease techniques, SDN1, have all been deregulated on the claim that they are no different from natural breeding methods, which is a bit weird because the Minister put out a media release saying that the updated gene technology regulators, as she called them, benefit cancer patients and medical research. So we're going to get these new techniques being fast-tracked through the medical system. But she just coincidentally forgot to mention that you can use these gene manipulation methods to manipulate any living organisms. So we're going to see new animals, crop plants, microorganisms, really anything in the living universe can now be genetically manipulated using these particular techniques and there will be no regulation or public notice at all. So they've really sidelined the regulator before the game even gets going. But that's here in Australia. What about other countries? Well, that's a work in progress. And in fact, uh, the global network of agrochemical industries known as CropLife, uh, which is their main public relations arm, it represents 100% of all the agrochemical industries in Australia and also all of the GM companies as well. It operates in 91 countries, so everywhere it's putting pressure on for deregulation around the world. Not a good time. The USA has already deregulated, and we see, for instance, new breeds of pig, for instance, which have really misshapen, very muscled animals. 
Uh, there are new varieties of mushrooms, wheat coming into the food supply and again without any proper assessment or regulation. So the deregulatory push that we've now seen in Australia is going on in many countries. However, our close neighbour New Zealand has decided that all the new gene manipulation techniques will be regulated. We were at pains to raise the issue of trans-Tasman trade as an issue which our government seems to have ignored. If they're regulating and we are not, then particularly in the food supply, then that's going to be um, a difficulty for the two countries, I think. Likewise, Europe has decided that all of the new techniques will be regulated as well. It just seems that people never learn from history that when you think of what's been happening over maybe the last 50 years, the things that have gone wrong because we've mucked around with the environment or whatever with animals and with often drastic results. Thinking that new technologies can arrive without any assessment or expert evaluation as to their safety or their environmental impacts I think is one of the really most foolish things that governments enter into and this is another example of it because um, these things always come back ultimately to bite us. Childhood deformities, for instance, from things like thalidomide, we see asbestos wreaking havoc on the health and welfare of miners and their families around the world. So there are a whole raft of things that uh, just need to be assessed properly before we say, yes, go ahead. I'd even um, raise the issue of uh, electromagnetic radiation from things like cell phones, which appear very benign. But if people want to take a look in the settings of their iPhone under RF exposure, they'll find a warning there that they not hold their phones against their head. Of course, it's very well hidden. You have to go through a number of different um, menus to find it. But there is the warning in the iPhone we see people with those little suckers pressed against their brains, particularly little children these days. I just saw that um, paediatricians are saying it's okay to um, allow your kids to use mobile devices from the age of 18 months. These are small developing organisms, and I think ultimately that foolish exposure will come home to roost as well. What's the Labor Party's point of view on this? still unclear. Unfortunately, the, um, the deregulation of the GM techniques also had to be given a tick by state governments, the majority of them, should I say, so I don't know which ones actually um, signed off, but that was the basis for the minister federally making the decision at the 11th hour to deregulate, which governments actually uh, did ultimately collapse under the pressure of the federal government's arguments about the need to fast-track these new GM techniques, uh, we're not quite sure. Interestingly, the Liberal governments of Tasmania and South Australia, which are both still GM-free, may have held up under the pressure. The third case against Monsanto, it's revealing a lot of things about various agencies. And one of those agencies is the EPA, the Environment Protection Agency. What have they found out during that trial? Well, it has come to light that that the Environment Protection Authority officials may have colluded with the company to slow the release of evidence that there was harm and also the safety review. The tests that were being done at the Centres for Disease Control seem to have been stalled as well. The evidence of 
collusion between government regulators and chemical industry interests in the USA at least seems to be pretty strong. That influence meant that the Environment Protection Authority has both slowed down its review and also finally come to the conclusion that it didn't need to do a full review of the health dangers of Roundup herbicide. We've seen something similar as far as the refusal to reassess these chemicals in Australia as well, where the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority has now since 2015 staunchly been saying Roundup's perfectly safe to use provided you follow the label instructions and they haven't been willing to do an official review of Roundup. Regulators, at least USA and Australia, have been very resistant to the idea that Roundup could firstly cause non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and secondly be responsible for a range of other human health impacts as well. That's a concern, but I think industry is not waiting on the regulators to make their final decisions and we see a number of different companies making decisions around the world. They're exposed, they're, they're liable and they may ex be exposed. So, for instance, Costco and Harrell's, who are two big retailers of agricultural chemicals in the USA with hundreds of outlets throughout the nation, have decided that the insurance industry told them we're not going to insure you against any liability for the impacts of Roundup herbicide, so we won't insure you for that. And as a result, both Harrell's and Costco have decided that they won't be stocking Roundup anymore. What is really needed, though, is for these cases to go through other jurisdictions rather than just California. Can that happen? Well, I think it ultimately would have to happen in the USA, at least, where um, there are over, now over 11,000 plaintiffs. So they're spread all across the country. It's only California residents who get the benefit of the fast track where their health is so compromised by their illness, particularly non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, that they're likely to die soon, that California law allows those cases to be expedited. But in other jurisdictions around the nation, uh, they get stalled in the courts. The company just waits them out until the plaintiffs die. However, I think in this case, Bayer is now so exposed that sometime soon it will probably think seriously about trying to come to some kind of mediation or negotiation with all these plaintiffs, try to get settlements with them, because if it's going to get settlements of $80 million a time uh, from them all, it's really going to send the company broke. And I think it will be looking to try to negotiate something much lower than that, perhaps $5 million each or something like that. Speculative at this stage, but you can see the way this, head, this is headed because of the shareholder pressure that's coming to bear on the company management to do something and fast about its uh, corporate exposure to these liabilities. Maybe these company directors or CEOs had their head in the sand thinking it's not going to happen. Well, I expect so, and of course, Monsanto, the smarties at Monsanto, knew that the game was up, I think, and that's why they um, sold out to Bayer. <laughs> the fault lies with Bayer's management, really, that it didn't do due diligence on what Monsanto's liability was likely to be. The settlement for the sale of the company was only in June 2018. A case came to court and was settled. The first one, the Johnson case, was adjudicated in October. So you would have thought that Bayer would have known that uh, these kinds of dangers to its uh, share price and so on were in the wings, but apparently they thought 
Monsanto, the greatest thing since sliced bread, and let's grab it while we can. Mind you, that said, all of the pundits out on the internet are saying that the sales of Roundup globally are going to continue to increase, and uh, some people are optimistically, or from our point, not optimistically, projecting that um, over the next decade, the sales will go from something in excess of five or six billion dollars a year, perhaps up to 10 or 11 billion dollars in Roundup sales per annum. This is going to be very much disputed around the world. People are saying you can't use Roundup. For instance, the latest um, rejection of Roundup is in Vietnam, where of course they have a history of exposure to Agent Orange during the Vietnam War. We're very aware of the dangers of chemicals because they have even now in the third and fourth and fifth generations of children born since the direct exposures in the 1960s and 70s, they have um, a large numbers of deformed babies being born. So they've said that um, Roundup is now banned from importation into Vietnam. That has spin-offs as well. Vietnam is now a very substantial export market for Australian farmers and the farmers here are um, worried that because they don't set maximum residue levels on residues in things like food in Vietnam, that it may be that exports of uh, our bulk commodities like wheat and so on that are very likely to contain residues of Roundup, that the Vietnamese will reject those as well. It's a recent decision by the Vietnamese government but it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out as well with their ban on Roundup in place. Can you talk for a few minutes about glycosate? What is it and is it only in Roundup or is it in other products as well? I think the first thing to say is that it's certainly in... Roundup is a brand name and glyphosate is the active ingredient, the chemical, uh, which actually kills the weeds or any plant that it's applied to, in fact, unless it happens to be resistant to Roundup, which, of course, all of the genetically manipulated crops tolerate being sprayed with Roundup, and that's why they were genetically manipulated in the first place, so that farmers and others can spray the Roundup, including the glyphosate, over the crops without harming them. Now, that said, Roundup is a brand name. Glyphosate goes under a huge number of names, and, in fact, there are over 500 glyphosate-based herbicides registered for use in Australia in excess of 500. They're a variety of different strengths. They have a variety of different ingredients because, of course, glyphosate is never sprayed on its own. There are surfactants. There are a variety of chemicals used to spread the chemical on the plants to ensure that it penetrates into the plant for most effect. And, of course, those chemicals are probably quite toxic in their own right. Uh, certainly some of them have been targeted for particularly harsh criticism over the 50 years that Roundup has been, been registered with our regulator. For instance, some of those chemicals were found to harm aquatic organisms. Monsanto reformulated a variety of glyphosate herbicide that could be sprayed near waterways. It's thought to be a, um, an endocrine disruptor as well, so certain changes to the formulation were made as a result of that. But the bottom line is that probably between 1% for home use and 40% for on-farm use of these glyphosate-based herbicides are the glyphosate product, and that's where the main focus has been 
on uh, targeting the toxicity, but it's not the only one because these formulations, it appears, can cause other diseases as well, whether it's from possible birth defects, degenerative diseases in the elderly and so on. And there's quite a considerable body of evidence out there that uh, glyphosate-based herbicides are bad news for the environment and public health. So then is it just a matter of time before these other products are brought before the courts as well? Getting definitive evidence has been difficult, unfortunately, because there are so many chemicals used in the environment and many of them are formulations which contain a number of toxins. Just sorting the evidence out has been difficult, but the connection between non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and glyphosate now appears so definitive that this is the first time really that any number of people have been able to get into court, then get a judgment against these particular chemicals. But yes, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of synthetic chemicals used in industrial farming that people are routinely exposed to that um, are killers and make people sick. But the chemical industry has been very good at um, firstly doing, creating its own evidence for presentation to regulators and the regulators are a bunch of tame cats who mostly consider their decisions based on company data, not independent research. And then, secondly, the independent research is thoroughly discounted and discredited at every turn by what is one of the biggest industries worldwide, the agrochemical industry, which is Bayer, Monsanto, BASF, ChemChina, and a small handful of companies that are represented around the world, collaborate with each other, lobby politicians, pay substantial amounts of monies to uh, political parties, including in Australia, generally get uh, treatment in the regulatory systems that's very favourable to their interests. And this has just come up again this week in the Weekly Times. Perhaps we could uh, segue on to talking about um, election policy. Yeah, we put out an election questionnaire... Uh, we have now uh, responses from the Greens, the Liberals, the Health Australia Party and from the Science Party. We really, from the Liberal Coalition, the Liberals and the National Party, we got just the usual song and dance about how great our regulators are and not a straight answer to our questions. I know that the, um, the Greens have by far the best policies on agrochemicals and on genetic manipulation, so in their reply to our substantial questionnaire. They supported the continuation of the regulation of all genetic manipulation techniques. So they've been advocating uh, in the parliament and elsewhere on our behalf that regulation continue and that SDN1 not be deregulated as the government decided the day before the election. They've been very, very strong and consistent on that for many, many years. So I'd say that the Greens have been the number one on uh, precaution and a precautionary approach. I should say that we haven't had a reply from the ALP, although, you know, they've been equivocal so far about what their position is actually going to be. On the regulation of chemicals, we also have support from the Greens on the reintroduction of the chemical reapproval and reassessment scheme, which was passed by the Gillard government, was swiftly cancelled as soon as the Liberals were elected there was a system for reapproval and re-registration of all agricultural chemicals 
which was supposed to have started on the 1st of July in 2014. Barnaby Joyce cancelled it with a bill in the Parliament which the ALP went along with and cancelled that scheme. And we are now, and the Greens, to their credit, are in the Weekly Times this week advocating for the reinstatement. It would mean that um, all of the agricultural chemicals, and there are around about 11,000, 11,000, mind you, registered agricultural chemicals and veterinary chemicals in Australia. Uh, overseas, in Europe and in the USA, for instance, these require re-registration every 15 years. As a result, the companies uh, and independent scientists have an opportunity to bring forward new evidence, particularly new evidence of harm, before the re-registration occurs. And as a result, there's much more precaution in the regulation of agrochemicals over there now. And the scheme in Australia would have brought in similar rules. Every 15 years, those old chemicals, some of which have been registered now for up to 50 years without ever being reassessed, would come up for re-registration. The companies that have certified them would have to do contemporary research using up-to-date testing methods because a lot of the old evidence is uh, very shaky indeed. There would have to be evidence that the environment and public health would be protected. Those that uh, simply couldn't measure up or were too dangerous would have to be deregistered. And that's what the industry, the chemical industry and the governments are packing death about. They really don't want the system up and running again. So we are grateful for the green support for that particular policy. And we see also that some of those other minor parties, the Health and Wellness Party and the Science Party, offering some support to that as well. A lot to think about there from Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Hi there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St Kilda. Why don't you come on down, do the Google thing, check out echocenter.com and find out how you can help us help you look after the planet. And by the way, don't forget to support 3CR. Trump's wall bordering on chaos. That's the title of a post on pearls and irritations on the 8th of April by Richard Bynoski who served as ambassador to Mexico, the Central American Republics and Cuba from 1994 to 1997. Moving to the current situation regarding people from a number of countries in Central America seeking refuge in the US, it's all too easy for those in power in the US to blame the victim and conveniently ignore the history of US domination and influence in the countries to the south. Did it all begin with the Monroe Doctrine or should we look further back into history? No, I think probably that's that's probably the, the definition, the beginning of it. But let's remember that the Spanish were in the region. Uh, the English also had some colonies in Belize and other places in, in, the, in the Caribbean. And the United States didn't control the whole of the American mainland at that time. I mean, Mexico extended up into California and Texas and uh, Arizona. They had quite a lot of uh, territory. That was taken over in, in the Mexican-American War of the 18, 1870s, 1880s. But um, the borders were not settled until 
till well into the, the just about the turn of the century. Yeah, it was it was a, a, an interesting time. But the Monroe Doctrine was devised to say that America, the United States, would not allow other countries to come into the region and gather influence in the countries. They wanted to have the right to influence events in the whole of the Caribbean region. It was a it was a colonial policy. It was an imperialistic policy. And what was the reaction of other countries, particularly Spain? Oh, they, they didn't like it. The French didn't like it. The Spanish didn't. The, the Brits didn't either. But uh, there was nothing much they could do because the United States at the turn of the century had a, a very powerful navy, a powerful military forces, and they were just not going to have any interference. And the other thing was that American capital was flowing into the region and this was the of course the um, the reason behind the Monroe Doctrine as well. The United States wanted to have monopolistic capital in the region, in the whole of the Central American region. And what sort of capital was it? Well, you can start with the United Fruit Company, which was based in in the beginning in Boston, a company that had enormous capital and took over with the concurrence of corrupt presidents in the Central American republics, a lot of land. They took it away from the peasants. A lot of peasants were bereft of land and they had to work as um, as employees of the United Fruit Company. It spread beyond that. It, it went into railways and transport and shipping and to coal, uh, not so much coal, but to oil and sugar as well as, as fruit, as well as bananas. It was, uh, it was a monopolistic, capitalistic company John Foster Ballas, the former Secretary of State of, of uh, Eisenhower, and of, of he and his brother Alan Dulles, who was the beginning president of the big, beginning executive of the uh, of the CIA, they had enormous uh, shares in the United Fruit Company. So when Benz, the president of one of the of El Salvador, was uh, chucked out, it was done at the behest of of the United Fruit Company, and the Dulles brothers were involved. What that meant was that any President, it was a precedent for any president or any leader of any of the Central American republics that showed what they called socialist tendencies, communist tendencies. What that meant was anyone who wanted to free land up for the peasants and, and get rid of some of the capitalists was chucked out, uh, either through a, a, um, a coup or through other means, and someone more compatible with American interests was put in. It was a baneful and... Um, destructive policy, but that's, that existed, and, and to, to a great extent it still does. And what were the conditions for the workers and the peasants? Very poor. The, the, um, they were deprived of land. They had to work for whatever income they could find, uh, either for the United Fruit Company or for many of the Maquiladora industries that were put in, the, the, um, the processing companies that were put in with American capital into these countries. They worked in dormitories, they worked, uh, the conditions were pretty bad, and they still are. And this is the genesis of the, um, the caravans that came from these Central American republics, mainly from Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Nicaragua is almost in that same category as a poor country, but Daniel Ortega has managed to hang on, and it, it is a working democracy. But the other three, with corrupt rulers, have, um, and very corrupt police forces and, and uh, a lot of corruption in those countries has forced people to flee because they, they, don't, they just don't feel safe, families especially. It used to be that 
it was Mexican single men who had come into the United States from Mexico to earn money illegally, or under the net as it were, to send homes, send back to Mexico for their families. That has ceased, or that, that is much less popular now. That a lot of Mexicans go to other countries, to Canada and to Europe, when they go at all. But it's the Central American republics where families, not just single men, but families are fleeing and trying to get into the United States. But over those years, there has been a few leaders who have popped up, as you said, and tried to do the right thing by the people, but they don't last long, do they? That's right. That's the point I'm making. Daniel Ortega was one. The, the tragedy is that it was really under Ronald Reagan during the Cold War that he interpreted any attempt at social reform in the region as some kind of communist takeover, which was influenced, he thought, or he, he interpreted, by the Soviet Union. It was a Soviet move to take over territory and power in Central America, which, which was antipathetic to the Monroe Doctrine. In fact, that wasn't the case, just as Vietnam was not a, a satrap of communist China or, or the Soviet Union. These countries, the, the, the democratic rulers in these countries, have simply been working for the good of the people. They might be socialist, but that's not, it shouldn't be a bad thing. That's, they're, they're really working for the, their interests of their own people. And there was no significant Soviet influence there. There was in Cuba, but apart from that, no. You've spoken about Nicaragua, Guatemala and Honduras. What about Panama and maybe Costa Rica? How did they... Panama, well, Costa Rica is quite a, an interesting case. There weren't too many indigenes in Costa Rica, and the people who came in from Spain were small landholders. So it really was a fairly democratic system right from the start, and you haven't had the kind of exportation that you have in Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala. I'd say that it's probably the freest of any exploitation of any of these Central American countries and don't forget that, that they don't have a military force in Costa Rica they've got police but uh, the, the Nobel laureate president at one stage was the one who said that our country is going to be free of that sort of thing. Panama was an American colony they controlled the Panama can Canal zone it was really a, run like a military base but uh, during my time in the 90s in the 90s the United States handed over control of the canal to the Panamanian government. A lot of doomsayers on the right wing said that this wouldn't mean that the canal wouldn't be properly looked after. Panamanians didn't have, know how to do it. But that was a lot of hot air. In fact, they did, and they've controlled it and run it and administered it very well. And we have to remember the sorry story of Cuba under the United States before they had the revolution. Well, <laughs> Cuba is an American brothel really. Havana was a playground for the rat pack for the people like Frank Sinatra and Hoare's mob. There was huge gambling and prostitution and American capitalists flowed in there a great deal. But when Castro took over, he was fairly shambolic at first. He didn't seem to know very much what he was doing. But the amateur Castro and his cronies actually took control and they chucked out the uh, corrupt government and, and it became a, a socialist country. And he was very tough. He was able to manipulate public opinion and uh, he gained a great deal of popular support. And that was just what was needed in that country. 
Well, as you've alluded to, many, many people from those countries have crossed into the United States over the years and some have prospered and others have been totally exploited. What was the situation over those years that allowed those people in when you've got the, the situation now where you've got Trump talking about a wall? How did the other people get through? It's impossible to build the sort of wall that Trump wants. There's 3,400 kilometres of land border stretching from California to Texas. There are about 45 official entry points across the, the boundary, across the border. Most of the drugs flow in through those official points, hidden in secret compartments in motor vehicles and lorries and trucks, as well as coming in by more adventurous means like by submarines and by, uh, by air as well. The people who get across the border outside those entry points are asylum seekers. They're, they're they're not committing crimes, they're simply trying to flee and that should be, that is recognised as a human right in the, under the United Nations. It's impractical for Trump to try and close the border. So it's, it's probably more commerce flows to and fro across uh, between the United States and Mexico than any other intercontinental border in the world. It's a huge uh, flow of capital and of goods and services. And a lot of people live legitimately, a lot of Mexicans live legitimately in the United States and they work in Mexico. Some Americans, a lot of retired Americans particularly, live in Mexico and they cross over all the time. It can't be stopped. It's like King Canute trying to turn the tides back, what Trump is trying to do. Quite impractical and quite inhumane too because what he's done is separate families and, and at one stage he had children being separated from their parents. There was an outcry in the United States about that and you had to stop it. But it's impractical, it's ill-considered, it's based on no information or background, intelligent understanding of what's been going on. And I'm afraid that's one of the hallmarks of Trump's uh, administration. So what you're saying is that in the earlier period it was relatively easy for people to cross that border and get work in the United is. States. It still, yes. it still is for legitimate people. They, they still can go across if you've got the pass, if you've got your passport, if you've got your papers in order, if you've got a green card, you go across all the time. That's why it's very difficult to separate illegals out from legitimate people crossing the border on a daily basis. Well, look at Mexico, the country where you were living and working back in the in the nineties. Most of the time, that country or the governments have been clients of the United States. Where do you see Obrador now, the new president? Very interesting question. This man is is a lefty. He's a progressive. He's um, he's wanting to have better education, better medical facilities for people. He he wants to end too much uh, exploitation by imported capital. He stands up, he has stood up to Trump and will continue to do so. But his predecessors were the same. I remember uh, President Salinas, uh, he, he was uh, the man I first presented credentials to. He turned out to be quite corrupt in the end and he was quite right-wing. But he had a Mexican sense of the nationality, the, the national pride of the country, and he wasn't going to give in to the United States either. What the Mexican government has done over the years, the different governments, has been to manufacture, if you like, an anti-American feeling in Mexicans, which is really quite superficial, but it's used in a shrewd way to keep the Americans on their toes. In fact, 
Mexicans love America. They love the culture. They're very much involved in it. They want to be part of it all the time. But the Mexicans also have their pride, and they also realize that the United States has fought them in the past, has occupied parts of Mexico, Veracruz, uh, and, and, and have committed a good deal of aggression in their country, and they just don't like that and won't have it. So there's a, uh, Mexico is not to be underestimated. It's a, it's a, a rich country. It's a powerful country. And it's a, it's a middle power of consequence in the region. It's the second largest economy in, in the whole of Latin America after Brazil. So what's the future for this so-called wall or fence or whatever for Trump? Well, he, I, I can't say what the future is. I don't have a crystal ball. But he'll try, I think, to put it together piecemeal. But he's been distracted by many other issues. And I'm not sure if he'll have the perseverance or the concentration or the focus to continue to insist on having the war. He certainly has lost out against Congress in trying to blackmail them by cutting off supply for public federal public servants. That's been disastrous. I'm not sure he's going to try that again. But it just seems to me that he's got so many other issues to worry about, he might have to let this one go. We'll, we'll have to wait to see. And it's, it's an artificial indignation on his part anyway. The situation is not a crisis that he says it is. It could be very easily rectified by putting more money into it, by providing better facilities for processing and by having uh, better facilities on the, on the border for legal immigrants who want to come in. But instead of that, he's penalised the countries from where those refugees are coming from. Yes, he has. He shot himself in the foot by taking away aid programmes and by cutting the State Department's personnel of, of experts on Latin America, he's reducing America's capacity to understand what is going on. And the three countries, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador in particular, they're very poor, they're very corrupt, they're very violent, and by taking away aid, they're simply going to become poorer and more corrupt. And this means that more people will have the incentive to want to flee and come to the United States than before. What he should be doing is the reverse, by putting in more aid, by providing more recognition and expertise and, dare I say, Spanish speakers in the official beltway of, of Washington. He'd do much more intelligently trying to improve those countries than before. But while we've got the system that we have, while we've got the mindset of Trump and his uh, administration, we're not going to see much improvement, I'm afraid. And, of course, there's many states around that area who want the migrants to come through because often they're being exploited and day labour and not doing very well at all and they don't want that supply to stop. That's true. Um, a lot of men that stay in Mexico. The Mexicans are pretty flexible about it. There are other countries too. Of course, look, 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 at, look at Venezuela. Look, look what is going on there. And look at the fact that in many countries in Latin America you've suddenly had a swing, or not so suddenly, but there's a swing to the right. Uh, look, at, look at the new president of uh, Brazil, for goodness sake. He's, uh, he's a Latin American Trump in his own right. And you, you see that there, there are many reactionary governments in the region, but there's nothing like the crisis that exists in Central America, and, and I have to say in Venezuela at this time. It's pretty bad. But, of course, we can't lose sight of the fact that there are those families and young people on that border doing it very, very harsh conditions. That's right. In. That's and, right. It's, a, it's a, human, a human rights problem. It really is.
Okay, thanks, Richard. Oh, thank you very much. And you've been listening to Richard Bonofsky, for the former Australian ambassador back in the 1990s. Working for a great part of your life for peace and justice can be rewarding but also frustrating. I'm speaking today with someone who knows all about it, Dale Hess, a member of the Australian Quakers, otherwise known as the Friends. And as you will hear, Dale is originally from North America but has lived in Australia for many years. Where was home in your early years, Dale? I was raised in New Jersey, a little town called Titusville, outside of Trenton, the capital, about 10 miles, and uh, along the Delaware River. This is a historical place because uh, it was just at this point where George Washington crossed the Delaware to go into Trenton for the Battle of Trenton, which was sort of the turning point uh, in the war, Revolutionary War. Up to that point, the Americans hadn't won a battle and troops were deserting, so that um, this was a crucial battle. Was yours a Quaker family? No, no. My dad was from the Church of the Brethren. This is the German Baptist Brethren, not the Plymouth Brethren. And this is one of the historic peace churches. But there weren't any churches of the Brethren near where we lived. And so I was raised in, in the Presbyterian Church. And how big a part was religion in your family growing up? My mom was quite active in the church. My dad was a physician, and so he spent most of his time working as a physician. But he had a personal sense of religion and uh, piety, uh, and so that those values were transmitted to me. And did you stay in that area as you were growing up, or did you move further out, maybe for further education? Well, uh, when I left secondary school, I, I, I traveled uh, to Maine and then Pennsylvania and uh, the state of Washington and Colorado. So I moved around quite a bit uh, with getting further education. And what did you plan on doing? Well, I studied meteorology, uh, atmospheric science, I managed to get a, a job with um, the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory in Princeton for a couple of years, and then I came to Australia to work for CSIRO. And what were you doing, the same sort of work with CSIRO? Yes, yes. So there was basically research in uh, the lower part of the atmosphere and trying to understand the transfer processes for heat and momentum and moisture and um, how pollutants were dispersed in, in the part of the atmosphere where we live. When did you become a Quaker? I became a Quaker in, in 1970 uh, in Princeton at the time and I was listening to the radio and they were broadcasting about a blockade that the Quakers were doing uh, against the Electric Boat Company. The Electric Boat Company is one of the arms manufacturers in Connecticut at the time of the Vietnam War. And I had always thought 
you know, I admired Quakers, but uh, up to that point, I had never thought that I could be one. And I just thought, well, maybe I should just try and explore this a bit. And so when I came to Australia another month later, I then proceeded um, to explore what it was like to be a Quaker. And was peace and anti-war a big part of that? Yes, yes, that was uh, uh, certainly a, a major thing because this was during the Vietnam War and there was uh, efforts both in the United States and in Australia uh, to try to conscript people to go as part of the army to fight in the war. And so when I came to Melbourne, uh, we would have draft resistors uh, uh, who would come to our meetings uh, as part of support network that uh, they found, and we, we were able to offer them some assistance. In what way? Well, both uh, moral assistance, but sometimes accommodation or uh, other ways. And what did you find out about the history of the Quakers' peace and anti-war activities over those many, many years? Well, Quakers have had a very active history of anti-war, of both um, resisting war uh, as part of their uh, understanding of how to live in in a nonviolent lifestyle, but also to provide assistance to the victims of war. And so uh, it's both the, the nurturing and supporting role, but also the resistance role. And they moved out into other countries to work with people in countries who are with people who are under pressure. Uh, the, the Quakers have done this. Yes, uh, they, they have provided uh, assistance in, in many war-torn areas. One of the most uh, famous examples is um, after, well, during and after World War One, where they were providing food relief to countries all over Europe, and they were able to save, well, that they were feeding more than a million children a day after World War One, and it was really crucial because they uh, were able to reach out to the so-called enemy and actually provide uh, the food that enabled these children to survive. What about the efforts in the United States to work with the Native American Indian movements? Uh, They they have been working um, to try to provide legal assistance. One of the, the great problems, of course, is the a desire for the settlers uh, as they came to the United States to want to get land and displace the um, Native Americans. And so the Quakers um, provided both legal assistance to try to protect their rights, but also provided education and um, schools and were, were able to try to provide insights about how to grow crops to feed themselves um, because with the influx of settlers, the possibility to maintain their old hunting practices became less and less 
and so there had to be some sort of uh, an adjustment to enable them to get enough food. And work in Asia? They have worked in Asia. Quakers have been very active in Vietnam, for example, during the Vietnam War and after. They've been involved in China and more recently in North Korea and in South Korea. They've had uh, projects in India. And so, you know, it has been quite an extensive network of area of providing assistance. I'd imagine working in Vietnam during the war would have been a bit dicey. It was. They they had a program to provide prosthetics so that those who had been injured uh, in the war could have a way of rehabilitating themselves. But uh, there was pressure from um, the government, the United States government, the CIA, and so, yeah, it was something that required, you know, a fair amount of courage, but also stamina to resist it. And also China, which is pretty hostile to religions. How does that go? Well, they have had a program in China during World War II and providing various methods of assistance um, it, the, the Quakers don't proselytize, uh, so so they're not trying to be um, evangelical and, and convert people. What they're trying to do is to build relationships and to um, try to help uh, provide uh, the capacity for people to um, meet their own needs and provide the resources to assist them to do that. I know you went to North and South Korea last year. Is that your first time outside Australia after coming here in the 70s? No, no. I've uh, gone to um, West Papua. Uh, We we, uh, were invited to go to West Papua to um, try to give support to the Papuans who were suffering uh, violence uh, from... Um, the, the military uh, in in, um, in in Papua. I've been to um, South Africa just at the uh, time of uh, after uh, the Soweto uprising, uh, and um, was able to see the work that the Quakers were doing there. Um, so yeah, I, I've had a chance to travel outside of uh, Australia. Can you talk a bit more about what it was like in South Africa at that time? Well, the um, South African government was uh, trying to crack down on any uh, resistance. Uh, uh, There were uh, official um, investigations, inquiries, uh, commissions, uh, and um, Quakers were uh, testifying uh, at the Celia uh, Commission, for example, uh, that uh, there, there was a better way to do uh, this work, uh, that nonviolence uh, offered an opportunity to uh, actually uh, meet the needs of the people. Uh, there were uh, blacks were um, 
forced out of the cities and, and uh, forced to live in squatter camps around Cape Town, for example, uh, and basically uh, they were starving. And so Quakers were able to provide uh, food um, to uh, the, these camps, uh, which caused um, the, the uh, police to arrest uh, those that were providing food and um, interrogate them, and uh, so that um, there, there was, you know, some danger in, in doing this. Um, they were able to provide medical assistance. Um, the Quakers in Cape Town um, bought a an ambulance and uh, set up a network with um, doctors uh, who were willing to treat um, people uh, off the books. Uh, what would happen is that the police would come in and just spray bullets everywhere, and uh, anyone who was shot was obviously uh, a terrorist. And so the Quakers were able to provide a, a way for people who were injured to, to get medical assistance uh, without um, repercussions from the police. You've been listening to Quaker Dale Hess talking about his life as a, as a peace activist both in the United States as a younger person and since he's been in Australia since the 70s. I'll complete that interview with Dale on the program next week. On March 16, the Sintani region of Jayapura in West Papua was hit by massive flooding and landslides, killing at least 89 people, with more than 6,000 people evacuated from their home. 74 people are missing and 159 have been injured. This disaster is the result of torrential rain coupled with devastations of the mountains. Also poor waste management, polluting and clogging waterways, leading to flash flooding and mudslides. At this time, West Papua people need your help more than ever. Help us. Reach our goal to raise $10,000 to provide emergency supplies, food, first aid, nappies, baby food and milk formula. All money raised will go directly to Yayasan Abdi Budaya Nusantara a foundation facilitating the evacuation camp in Sentani, West Papua. Donate online at https chafforg project flood relief for West Papua. West Papuan people need you. It's time to help and don't make them feel alone. My name is Ian Ham, and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family. And even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum, and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just like me, and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, 
go to healingfoundation.org.au. A 3CR supporter. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Speaking now with Susan Faulkner, Actives for Palestine, over a number of years. Susan, can I ask you about the first time you visited Palestine? When was that? That was about eight years ago. We were living in Amman. My husband was working with uh, Iraqi refugees that were coming down into Jordan. I wanted to um, uh, go to Jerusalem for Easter. So I popped over the River Jordan, as they do, and up into Jerusalem. And I did that many times. We had many visitors, and they all wanted to go to Jerusalem, obviously. So I went many, many times. But then one time I went, and um, I could see you could get the bus to Jerusalem, or you could, there was a uh, signpost to uh, Ramallah. So I thought, well, I'll go to Ramallah. I'll explore what is this Ramallah place. That was the beginning of my ventures into the West Bank. And what was Ramallah like eight years ago? Well, I was just shocked having gone into uh, Jerusalem many times and gone into Tel Aviv, as one does, and you're in, you know, you're in deep, deep Western development and cities that you're, or towns that you're used to seeing, and suddenly I was in very close by, but I was in a very, very different economic environment. Going through villages, I could not believe the contrast of what I was seeing so close to, uh, to Jerusalem. Ramallah itself was a, a bustling city, but with very desperate poor parts to it, of course. But then, you know, the surrounding towns and the villages were so different to anything I'd seen in Israel. Well, moving along to your second last visit, and that was six years after the first one, did you get the feeling at that time that things had got worse from your first time? Definitely. Absolutely. I think there is a huge optimism say eight years ago talking to people in villages talking to teachers in schools but that optimism is slightly waning that's what you notice as things get worse as the situation unravels in a worse degree people's optimism is being eroded the last time you were there was late last year a longer stay who organized this one this is an international group based in uh, Scandinavia. It's a women's group, and they only focus in one area, in uh, the West Bank. What did you see while you were there? To start off with, we were, we were in uh, a village that had been a thriving village many, many decades ago, a very wealthy village, and we were 15 women 
from different countries of the world sharing this house. Our main focus really was to uh, to witness the reality of Palestinians living under the um, military occupation. So, for example, we daily um, worked with the olive harvest. We spent many weeks picking olives. And you might say, well, what, you know, what was the big deal about that? Well, there's a huge deal about that because, as you know, olives are a huge part of the economy for Palestinians. They rely on them for everything, for their, their cooking, medicinal, they try and export them. It could be an enormous economic profit, but it's not because um, they, they're not allowed to, uh, for the most part, they're not allowed to export the olive oil, but that's another story. So often in many olive um, groves, they are only allowed to go in for maybe four to five hours a day. The local military have decided on the number of hours that they can work there. Now, by right, during the harvest, they need to be there from dawn to dusk to um, harvest the olives. So because they've only got four or five hours or more, they have a labor force, people like us, it uh, makes it more economic for the harvest to get more olives out. And the other thing is, in a sense, we are also a protective presence because many, many of these olive groves are right up against settlements. Either the settlers can, and I've seen it, use horrid tactics like pointing guns at the, the pickers, the, um, the villagers, so they get rather worried and then they have to leave. Often if they do leave, then uh, the settlers come down and help themselves to the olives. So by us being there, we are acting as a, as a protective presence for the most part so they can get on picking the olives without being hustled too much from the settlers. There are many instances, though, where those trees are uprooted. Oh, indeed, indeed, we had many. We were called up several times to various uh, groves, and one particular fellow was absolutely distraught. He had something in the region of about 50 olive trees had been uprooted that night. Uh, he was right up against the settlement, and he said this settlement was using huge cranes. They were extending it, so they had these enormous machines that they just brought down. So uprooting olives wasn't a big deal at all. And the, the trees were just pulled away and crunched into nothing. And he wanted, and we were wondering why did he want us to be there the next day? Well, he wanted us to actually sit there and be a protective presence because he was then, he was deliberately replanting small trees or whatever that was given to him, were given to him, replanting them to show the settlers that he wasn't going to be overrun by their, um, their horror. This goes on without any warning. Suddenly in the night it happens. Yes, yes indeed. Uh, there was a time when, when you picked olives, when you, the olive bags are horrendously heavy. They can, you know, they can up, be up to 30 kilos and they're very large. And so what used to happen was that during the harvest, you would uh, leave bags, half filled bags or full bags in the um, grove for a few days until you got so many and then you would take them out with some transport. But now they can't do that because um, they know that if they leave any of the olive, picked olives, they will be stolen in the night and taken away. And any machine, they used to have, not machines, but they would have pickers and forks and all sorts. And they would also leave those, because they're, they're heavy to bring every day to the groves. But now they have to remove everything every day, bring in 
and removed because they will be stolen. Did you have any interaction with those settlers? Yes, several times indeed. We obviously had to to be aware of our safety as well. Um, in se- several cases, we did approach settlers that were actually, they stood there with a, I don't know what the machines are, M, M somethings that they have on their backs. And in several cases, we did approach them and they kept them on their backs. And we asked why, in fact, you know, they were hassling. And, and several of them were quite rational. They were told, they said that uh, the, uh, the other settlers felt that the, uh, they were too close to these uh, Palestinians who were dangerous and they really had to protect. They didn't want to do any harm, but they were under pressure. Others were not so nice at all, and they said that um, just get out of their sight. We were just um, Palestinian lovers. We were, <clears throat> we were the, the worst kind of human beings that they could, we could stand and protect these people who they regard, many, many regard as almost subhuman. This is their philosophy. They regard, the many of them regard Palestinians, one, they shouldn't be there for a start, their land, and two, they're not, they're not human. They're, they're uncultured and stupid, animal-like. They have the worst, worst feelings for them. But this is all being brainwashed into them because they're there and, and the Palestinians are over the hill. Some sort of mental protection, I think, as to uh, how they can survive there, not that they need survival because they're so well protected. Did you get a sense of where these settlers came from? Uh, Russia, most of them. Yeah. And they weren't, ni- they weren't nice Russians. They were really rough. They had been persuaded to be there. Most of the settlers have been persuaded to be there. They are given huge financial advantages, very low-cost low housing, promises of um, good jobs, and a lifestyle that they would never dream of um, having back in Russia. So they are not going to relent or give that up. That is theirs and that is what they're going to keep. What was your interaction with the children? Wonderful, wonderful. Initially, the the house that we stayed in, it's a large old Palestinian house that's been given to this group by the village. It obviously belonged to a very wealthy family, many, many rooms or whatever. And I think initially... The village was a little bit um, suspicious of who all these internationals were, but now it's happened over so many years, they're totally part of the village. You're invited into houses. The children want to speak to you. They want to practice their English. They want to know where you're from, what your country's like. So it's a lovely, lovely interaction. One of our, our um, household, householders or house <laughs> tenants, she was a skateboarder. She was from Norway and she brought her skateboard with her. And she was giving them um, skateboarding lessons through the, um, some of the streets of the village and had, like Pied Piper, she had copious amounts of children following her and learning how to skateboard. Lovely, lovely interaction. Did you have the soldiers coming into the village? Yes, indeed. We did. And uh, not so much our village, but the village on the next hill. They seemed to target various villages for months on end. So they intimidate people so much that in the end, I think many people leave the village and I think that's the whole um, name of the game. village next to us, we were called over. They often do night raids and this particular village was pressured with night raids and there had been a night raid and two little boys, one 11, one 12, in the middle of the night, um, accompanied by about 30 military, heavily 
armed military and tear gas were um, arrested and taken away in the night to a destination unknown but somewhere in Israel. How did the families find out where the children were? They didn't. They wouldn't. There are lawyers that they try and, you know, get hold of to help them. But many times what happens is these children, um, they disappear for sometimes months on end. And there's a whole series of things that they go through. They're often put in solitary confinement. They're uh, duffed up a little bit. They're told that they threw stones and they deny it, of course. Most of them haven't thrown a stone. And even if they had thrown, thrown a stone, you know, against this almighty military force, it's not exactly a... Uh, a big deal, but most of them hadn't. But then the intimidation goes, well, your friend next door says you did. So it goes on from there. And often the parents don't see them until they've been brought to a children's military court. Possibly um, one big one near Ramallah. What did you find out about those military courts? There are several international um, barristers that work in Ramallah, and one particular one did manage to get hold of permission for me to actually go to one of the to go to the main court it was the most desperate thing one could see it's like something out of last the world war there were maybe six boys of 12 13 they were shackled at, no, on their arms and shackled on their ankles in a queue waiting to uh, in a, coming into the court to be cross-examined as to uh, possibly throwing a stone Something like 95% of these children are then given a um, prison sentence of up to five years. On that particular day I went, uh, the um, judge happened to be a settler, which is an interesting one, but she had a bad cold, so she, um, she didn't turn up. Those four young boys had to be turned around and put back into wherever they'd come from until she was better, until they resumed the court and some of the parents were there in Deva. That's the first time they had seen them, uh, in one case for several months. And it was a desperate, desperate thing to see. And those parents might have had to travel for a long way to get to where Absolutely. that court was. Absolutely. And often pay a lot of money to various lawyers to help them out as to where they might be able to track, track their, their children. Many can't afford to, to get hold of a lawyer, although villages do club together to get hold of a lawyer, but you know, these villages, for the most part, are desperately poor. Did you find out from those international laws about how many children are being treated like this, how many are in those detention centres? The truth is I didn't, know, And I don't know if they even know, that's the thing. But it, it's certainly in hundreds, I know that. What did you find out about the international lawyers? They were incredibly highly committed lawyers as to um, um, what they were doing. They could have been back in their own countries earning a whack, but they weren't. They felt that this is something that they felt very strongly about, and they were highly committed, and I had such respect for them. What they do, their job really in court is to state international law and humanitarian law and make sure that the court, as best they can, stick by that. But, of course, as they said, in many cases, that, that doesn't happen. But that's their job. That's as far as they can go. The military court. All Palestinians are under military law. The settlers, even though they live in the West Bank, they're under civil law.
You travelled to the border of Israel and Gaza. You have friends there. What did you experience there? Well, several years ago, oh, I forgot to mention, I had that probably what turned me most of all was that after the first time I went, I found that there was a study tour going from Australia. So I joined the study tour of the West Bank, Israel and Gaza. At that occasion, which would have been now four years ago, we actually got access to Gaza. So I went into Gaza. So this was four years ago. Where do I start? It was horrific. To get in, you have to walk a long, long way in, in, in like a cattle pen through these cattle pens that go on and on and on. But that's that's by the way. And then we had a taxi that took us into the main city. His name I can't recall at the moment. Carnunis. Oh, that's right. We went through street after street after street of bombed out housing, bombed out buildings. And of course, they can't be repaired or rebuilt because they cannot bring in uh, basic cement or any building materials through the um, border. The Israelis don't allow it. So these have remained there. And one particular building I saw had been a hospital. And they still had some of the legs of the beds sticking, poking up through the um, rubbish or through the, the demolished building. And that was just so, so poignant, so upsetting to think that somebody had actually been in that bed. We went to a, a, a many children's clinics and we found that many of the children coming in were now three and four, five maybe, and had huge blisters on their arms, horrendous burn blisters, which were recently coming out. They hadn't been there when two years ago, but they were coming out now. And apparently it's the result of a particular gas that is latent in the body, comes out many years later. So nothing at the time when it's been used can be proved. But that, that was awful to see these mothers carrying these children that had these, and, they, and there was very, very little medication for them. Uh, we went to a hospital the same, where there were just rooms and rooms of beds. Or they didn't have enough sheets for them. They didn't have enough blankets. They didn't have enough uh, medical machinery for them. In the one particular hospital, um, a lot of children suffer terrible lung problems after um, bombings. And um, they were waiting for a particular machine, a lung machine that was being, had been sent from Switzerland. Switzerland had donated it, but the um, Israelis had kept it at the border and wouldn't allow it in because they regarded it as being possibly a dangerous weapon. It was just one desperate situation after another. Tribes and tribes of young, young people walking around in big groups around the streets is just no work. Huge unemployment. And so what people do to, to get out of the, this devastating area, they go down to the, the, the beach, the water, just to, just to get a feeling of um, freedom. They're joking out to the sea. The sea is heavily polluted. The fishing boats can only go out a short while. The fish, I don't know, aren't, aren't the nicest things to eat because of the pollution. The Israelis are dumping a lot of um, sewage along the beaches. Uh, and on Gaza, and it's affecting the water. The UN says that it will be a humanitarian disaster in a matter of years, and absolutely, and, this was, and I was there three years ago, so God knows what it's like now. And now we have another series of bombings. Absolutely, and nothing can be repaired.
And so they live in this devastation the whole time with no hope, with absolutely no hope of anything improving. The water is totally non-drinkable because the, um, the soil has been so polluted. The little water there is, the electricity goes off most of the time. And I actually heard today that they're actually going to cut electricity now for quite a while to Gaza because there have been more rocket attacks. And um, the, the Israelis um, want to prove a point and cut off electricity completely for quite a while. But well, they've been dealing with cuts for years, but this is serious cuts now. Netanyahu has announced that he was going to escalate the bombing. Yes, yes. I don't know what's going to happen in Gaza. At totally, when I came out of Gaza, I cried all the way up into where we stay, in Jerusalem. I just cried. The devastation I saw and the hopelessness of what's going on there. And I don't know how people can get up every day and survive another day because there's nothing, there's nothing there to survive. How they're growing their food, I don't know because no food can come in. And it's a situation where it's a ghetto and it's no better and what, what happened in the Warsaw Ghetto in the Second World War. People are slowly, slowly, mentally and physically dying. And the world is looking on. Each time you come back to Australia, I'd imagine that you let certain people in the government and whatever know exactly what is happening, so it's not being done without people knowing what's happening. Indeed, I do, and that's my whole reason um, when I return is to be an advocate for the Palestinians and what is going on. And I write, or I write to papers, I give talks, I make present, uh, presentations at different places, PowerPoints and whatever. Most people are so ignorant of what's happening because the media is uh, well-crafted for the most part, is very well-crafted in giving only one side of the story. You know, these awful gardens sending rockets over, whatever. That's, that's the main push. But what they're not saying is why are they doing it and where are they doing it from and what life is like, say, in Gaza or what life is like in West Bank. People have no idea. And when you tell them and when you show them videos or, or photographs that I have, everybody's absolutely shocked, totally shocked. And the Australian government, I'm afraid, is not in the pocket of the at all and although you can lobby MPs there are very few MPs that will listen to you Any plans to go back? Oh yes, every year I can't go this year because I had a really bad accident with my knee I fell over in a big rock doing the olive um, harvest and I need a new knee now <laughs> when I've got my get my new knee um, yes I will be back I want to go back every October, November, December Thank you Susan Pleasure well, that's dedication for you, isn't it? You break your knee, fracture your knee, get a new knee and go back again. That's Susan Faulkner speaking about her many visits to the West Bank and just one visit to Gaza. There's not too many people who get into Gaza now, I've been told, and I doubt whether she'd get back in it either. That's just about the end of the program but we've got a little bit of time left 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine 
all profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. I have to get the car service for the big drive on Friday. I'll make sure the kids are ready. I won't forget mozzie spray this time. Oh, and we can't forget to vote before we go. What? The federal election is on Saturday the 18th of May and all Australian citizens age 18 years and over must vote. But if you know you won't be able to make it to a polling place on election day, you may be able to vote early. To find out how, go to aec.gov.au or call 132326. It's our vote and our future. Authorised by the Electoral Commissioner Canberra. A 3CR supporter. I'm quite sure that listeners would realise now that the radio thon is coming up about the middle of June. It seems a, a long way away, but it's only about four or five weeks away. So I'm um, alerting listeners to this program, and I know there are many, to um, think about how they're going to support 3CR, and in particular maybe this program to make sure that we keep going for yet another year. We've been going since 1976. That's an awful long time. And it's been a struggle every year to keep things on the air. But that's what we do best. And we just need the support for people out there to support us as volunteers who keep the programs on air every week. So keep that in mind. It's about four or five weeks' time. I'm sure that you'll hear... A lot about it in the next couple of weeks, but do um, make sure that if you can, whatever amount, you can contribute to keeping 3CR on air for yet another year. Well, that is all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock, so I'll say bye for now.